You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, seeks to improve the quality of healthcare in America. We want to make healthcare better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. Now, if you're a fan of this podcast or have any comments or concerns, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you soon. On today's episode of Inside Healthcare, we get back to basics and investigate the difference between value and quality and how they work together. Later, the inside scoop on NCQA's upcoming and sold-out Health Innovation Summit. But first, my grandma used to say, sometimes when you say a word often enough, it starts to lose its meaning. Take the word value, for example. In the healthcare world, we use the word value a lot. We talk about value-based care in terms of putting patients first, listening to patients' stories, giving thoughtful input based on what they say. Sometimes we talk about value-based payment models, where providers and clinicians are encouraged to base their payment drivers on achieving positive patient outcomes rather than on a purely financial basis. But as we look to 2023, could it be time for a reset on the definition of the term value? Now, in this episode of Inside Healthcare, we get down to the bottom of this. We turn to the head of the Northern Virginia-based Innovation and Value Initiative, or IVI. As this nonprofit's website says, they work with patients, employers, payers, and providers to assess what value means to them and to serve as a laboratory for testing new methods to improve value assessment. And they do all this by working with partners throughout the U.S. and around the world. Our first guest today is Dr. Jason Spangler, CEO for the Innovation and Value Initiative. Dr. Spangler is unique in the C-suite. He started as an MD and then decided to get his MPH, his Master's in Public Health. He traveled to hazardous locations around the world on purpose, setting up free clinics and training others in supporting impoverished communities. And he worked for Pfizer, and then he was chief medical officer for a nonprofit, Partnership for Prevention. Uh, And then he was head of global health technology assessment, right? Global HTA policy, strategy, and engagement for Amgen. Uh, And he told me I could call him Jason by his first name, so no disrespect to him. So I'm sure Jason's not alone, but a member of a special club of people whose career has alternated in the health world between big pharma and nonprofits. So we'll ask him about that as well. Well, now he's CEO of the Innovation and Value Initiative. Will he clarify our definition of value or does he think the coming year is gonna bring a whole new meaning? And what's the difference between value of care and quality of care? So don't answer just that, listen up. You'll find out in my conversation with Dr. Jason Spangler. So the Innovation and Value Initiative is an independent nonprofit research organization whose mission is actually to 
advance the science practice use of value assessment within healthcare so that it's more meaningful for those who receive healthcare, those who provide healthcare, and those who pay for healthcare. Now, that's a pretty technical mission statement, so let me just narrow that down a little bit. Basically, what we're trying to do is to make sure that as we get new and newer technologies and innovation in healthcare, that we do a better job of assessing their value, particularly for patients. How do you assess value in, in, in at IVI? What, what technology do you use? Uh, uh, how do you go about doing that? So we do that in two ways. And I would say a simple definition of a value assessment or assessing value is basically determining the benefits of a new innovation or technological intervention in healthcare versus basically the cost. You know, what is the cost of that intervention? So that's kind of your basic cost effectiveness analysis definition of a value assessment. At IVI, we do that in two ways. One is to develop best practices and recommendations at a high level about what value assessment should be. So those are things like it needs to be transparent. It needs to be patient-centered. It needs to be equitable. So at a high level, that's one aspect of it. The second aspect is the science behind that, and that is to try to develop better methods And we do that through different types of modeling, but better methods to actually assess value from a technical perspective. And that includes incorporating other aspects of value that aren't historically included in traditional cost-effectiveness analysis. What kinds of entities do you work with? Are you working with hospitals or entire hospital systems? Uh, Or who, which kinds of entities would you like to work with in order to be able to to do these assessments and then also to be able to communicate your results and, and work with places to uh, to improve their value? Yeah, that's a great question. To, to be clear, we don't actually do assessments themselves. We develop models so others can use it as a tool to do their own assessments. But as we want to incorporate all the stakeholders in the healthcare system in this, and so we are a membership organization. We have members from life science companies, from patient advocacy organizations, you know, from payers, individual researchers, academic institutions. So those are all of the stakeholders we want to work with. As you think about value, and you know, you said you've had many conversations on this podcast about value, it includes all of the stakeholders in the healthcare system. And so as an organization, we want to include all of those in the work that we do and get all of those important perspectives. So what drives you when you're talking about value? I mean, if IVI is all, it's all about value. And when we've had discussions on uh, this podcast on Inside Healthcare about value, we've talked about value-based care or value-based models of care in terms of flipping a traditional paradigm around that instead of somebody going to the doctor and letting the doctor just dictate to them what they should do and then people sort of go home and they blindly do that it that model maybe it worked at some point but it doesn't work anymore uh, and part of the reasons it doesn't work are people's attitudes especially during the pandemic towards healthcare and wanting to find their own solutions for doing things not wanting to go to a doctor if they go there's more of a mistrust of of doctors sometimes um and when it comes to value based care we've talked about models that purposely, intentionally turn things around. You go to a doctor and the doctor asks one question, how are you doing or what are you feeling? And then they listen as much as they can 
in order to help evaluate the patient before they start telling the patient what to do. It's some of it is uh, it's behavioral um, in terms of these are new habits that people need to have. I mean, am I going in a different direction from what IVI does? I wouldn't say a different direction. I think a lot of what you just said there is something that goes back to your original question was what drives us. And that is patient-centeredness, right? The patient is the focus of what we want to do. And so the, the patient's perspective is really important when it comes to this. And unfortunately, when you look at the history of kind of value assessment and cost-effectiveness analysis and budget impact, all of these kind of health economic terms, the patient is not at the center of those. A lot of what's at the center is the data. And so there are patient perspective and aspects of value that are important to patients that we haven't done a great job incorporating in how to assess value. And that's what really drives us. How can we get these other aspects of value that we haven't really been able to historically or traditionally incorporate into how we assess value into currently how we do that? And I think that ties back to what you just talked about, you know, in the provider-patient interaction, the provider now is more getting the patient's perspective. And we're trying to do the same thing when it comes to value assessment. How do we get the patient perspective and the things that are important to them, to their families, to their caregivers, into kind of the methodology of how we assess value, which we haven't done historically? You know, let me let me ask you, so we're talking about value and you mentioned quality. So what's the intersection uh, between the two of them? Or what's the difference? What's the operational definitions for them for you? I think you hit on some of that already. So let me just kind of expand on that. I think the relationship between value and quality is the type of care you're getting, right? You want the highest quality care, the best care for the patient in an individual situation. But at the same time, because of the way our healthcare system is set up, there are limits, you know, certain types of care that can be provided because of a variety of reasons, but a lot of it has to do with price and cost and, you know, budgets and how much, you know, that can be paid for by the patient, by the system, et cetera. And so not only do we want the best care, but we want the best care that provides the highest value to that patient. And so not only are they getting the most expensive care, which sometimes is the best care, but also they're getting the highest value care. So that's the best care at the best price. And so that that's, I think, where there's the tie between value and quality is not only the best care that they can get, but the best care that actually is the best for the system as well as the patient. And so I think that's where a lot of the, the work intersects with each other. I would wanna bring other one other point, and that's when you mentioned value-based care. You know, to have value-based care, you actually have to know what the value is, right? So, and I think that's the other tie. You know, if you want high-quality value-based care, you actually have to assess, well, what is the best value in care? And the last thing I would add about that is traditionally value assessment has been used around pharmaceutical products, right? Drugs, particularly kind of very innovative drugs, very specialty drugs, which are usually the most expensive drugs. But we strongly believe, and I think you at NCQA and others also believe that it, all interventions, healthcare interventions and, and new technologies, whether it's devices, new procedures, even the actual care that you get between a clinician or a provider and a patient, we need to look at the value of all of that as well. And where we're starting to see that is with new innovations, right? You've heard about, I'm sure, a lot of the gene therapies and, you know, gene editing, which is kind of a lot of sci-fi in many ways interventions, but also like digital health interventions. We're seeing a lot of apps, you know, 
that are coming out around health and and do they work? And if they do work, is that providing good quality care and are, and is the providing value to the system as well? So, you know, I think that's where the intersection is between between the two. And I think there is a strong relationship. And that's why we as an organization love to, to partner with NCQA and the work that you guys are doing, because I think we can together with obviously many other organizations kind of drive for better quality care and for high value care. So at IVI, you talk about HTA, you talk about your health technology assessment. So tell us briefly, what, what could be included in the assessment? What's the, uh, the process for doing the assessment? What tools are you using? And what are some of the challenges in performing um, HTA? Yeah, it's a great question. So just to make thing, one thing clear with definitions, what we call value assessment in the United States is typically called health technology assessment outside the United States. And as we know, those healthcare systems are very different than ours. Most of them are government run and or government funded. So because the government is paying for healthcare, they want to make sure that what they're paying for is not only high quality, but also brings value to, to the system and works for patients. And so when we talk about HTA, we're basically talking about value assessment as well here. You know, again, as I mentioned earlier, traditionally what's been included is just kind of simple cost effectiveness work. And that is, you know, what are the health outcomes that you're looking for, you know, over the price that you're paying? And that's, you know, what has been used as the definition of value for, for most for most of our time looking at value. What we're trying to do, and this is where your question about challenges come up, is what are other aspects of value that are important? And I, I won't bring in, there's a, there's a terminology you might, might or not have heard called the value flower that basically the International Society of Health Economists use. And it has different petals and the different petals have different aspects of value. But I'll just mention a couple where we're trying to incorporate those into HTA or, or value assessment. And then I'll talk about the challenges with those. So one is something called scientific spillover. So when you're trying to develop, say, a new drug or a new type of therapy, a lot of times that therapy might work, but might not work as well as you want. But the science behind it is actually educating you or giving you benefits about another type of therapy. And so that's one thing that, you know, because the science is so complex, a lot of times the application of that science might not be to the original type of therapy, but might help you with additional types of therapies that you see in the future. And so that's a benefit that we don't really know. We're trying to figure out, well, how does that, how does that figure into assessing the value of the original product that you're trying to develop? Another is something called option value, which is, you know, you might get a therapy and it might improve your quality of life. It might extend your life, but it's not, maybe it's only a few months, maybe it's six months, maybe a year, but in the interim period, there might be another therapy that's developed that might benefit a lot more. And so it's giving you more options in the future just by, you know, extending your life a certain amount of time. And so, so those are things that are important to patients. We, we know that from actually talking to patients about that. But how do we actually get that into the math and the technical aspect of, of doing, you know, value assessment? And so that's where the challenge, you know, comes in those different aspects. And so where what we're trying to do is actually they're, they're developing new methods, health economic methods to, to incorporate those into it. And then the other challenge is taking qualitative data. So basically patient data, information we get from patients and trying to make it quantitative so that we can actually do the, the technical aspect of the math. And so that's where the biggest challenge comes in. But, but we've been able to do that with, 
with some aspects of value and the work that we're doing, the research is trying to do that with other aspects of value and kind of incorporate that into the, the modeling that's done and the, the math basically that's done to develop the value of these new technologies and, and innovations. I mean, it sounds like the assessment tools and the research that you're doing, you're just trying to throw it at every possible every possible solution that comes your way, every possible therapy and remedy, uh, you know, and it's the history of science to to be researching and finding, maybe you start with one specific uh, problem that I'm trying to solve or one specific ailment that I'm trying to resolve somehow, and I come up with a therapy or a medication and um, it helps that one thing, but then some other researcher sees what I'm doing and realizes, actually, I can apply that to something completely different or a different product or a different, and there's there's no limits, but yeah. it doesn't work unless everybody knows about the therapies that are being created. And it doesn't work unless we have really effective value assessment. So like with NCQA, anytime we can turn something into a number and a measure and a metric, then we can really demonstrate how progress is being made. Uh, we can really demonstrate what's working and what isn't. Can I comment on it real quick? Because I Please. think you, you gave maybe even a better definition of scientific spillover. You talked about scientists looking at the work of others. I mean, that's that's another key aspect of scientific spillover. And the last thing I would just say about what you just mentioned about measures, I mean, you know, yeah, the, the, that's another relationship and maybe a better way to say the relationship between quality and value is, you know, you you're NCQA is doing work to develop quality measures to actually measure the quality of care. And what we're trying to do is improve the science around measuring the value of that care. And so there's a lot of similarities between, you know, the type of work that we're both doing. Well, I want to find out a little bit about where you came from and that led you to IVI. And when I say it led you to IVI, maybe it's destiny, maybe it's it's your career, but either way... um, we've talked to people who've gotten MDs and we've certainly had guests who have a master's in public health. Your MPH is from um, Hopkins. And uh, what did you do after that? I, you went all over the place. So what, what did you do? Why did you travel so much? What kinds of projects were you doing internationally? Sure. So, so I, I need to start a little further back if you don't mind. So I, I went into medicine wanting to do population health and public health not actually wanting to see individual patients. And it wasn't about the patients. I love patients. It was just everything else around the healthcare system. And I thought I could have a greater impact by working you know, with populations versus individual patients. And so because of that, after my initial training in internal medicine, I went into preventive medicine, which is a specialty that focuses on population health. And that's where I got my MPH. So Getting my MPH at Johns Hopkins was part of their preventive medicine residency program. One year of that residency training is getting your MPH. And I initially wanted to go into international public health. And it's hard to probably see that if you look at my history, but I really wanted to do kind of refugee health, disaster medicine, work in dangerous areas around the world. And, um, you know, life circumstances changed um, for me and, and I got much more interested in kind of health policy work. And so that's what led into my, you know, most of my career has been in health policy and more recently in health economics work. Um, But I've kind of, I started out in the industry. So I started out at Pfizer, um, but doing public health. So it was really interesting at that time, they had a public health group, which is unusual as you can imagine for a pharmaceutical company. 
And so I was able to do a lot of population health, but I was able to start into health policy. And then I went to a nonprofit uh, organization after that, and then came <laughs> to another biopharma, biotech company of Amgen, and then came to IVI. But that, that move between the pharmaceutical biotech industry and the nonprofit, I think really shaped my career to get me to where I am with IVI. Throughout all of that, though, you mentioned kind of international work. I, I did start with international work because that's where I thought I was going. And then particularly at, at Amgen, I was able to have more global roles. And how that has influenced my work at IBI is the past, I would say, few, few years, we've seen a much more overlap between what is happening outside the U.S., and what's happening inside the US around our healthcare systems. And as I mentioned earlier, even though our healthcare systems are very different in the US compared to particularly in, in Europe, there is some similarities and there is some work that you know, we've done from a payer perspective that they might try to implement over there. And there's definitely things that they've done from an HTA perspective that the US is now thinking about. And we might be headed in a journey in that direction of what other countries have done when it comes to value assessment and HTA. And so my experience kind of working a little bit in the global aspect of that is, I think, helping me to think about, you know, what IBI is doing and how we can kind of impact our healthcare environment here when it comes to HTA and value assessment. As IBI continues on our work and, you know, our mission for the organization that we need to be thinking about what's happening outside the U.S., because the people in the U.S. that are also shaping this environment are thinking about those things as well. What do you see as the advantage of IVI being a nonprofit, a not-for-profit organization? When it comes to being a nonprofit, um, are there advantages to, to that? Uh, and certainly you have to have a mission statement and you have to clarify it to, uh, to be classified as a nonprofit. So what's the difference between being a nonprofit versus being a private company in terms of what IVI is uh, trying to approach and trying to accomplish? Yeah, I think there's two main benefits of that. One is being an independent nonprofit, I think, gives us a lot of credibility. We obviously have a large you know, variety or big you know, diversity of members from all of the different stakeholders that this is important to. And so we are not you know, bias towards one stakeholder versus another, you know, whether it's life sciences or the patient organizations or the payers, but being that independent nonprofit makes us credible to all of those. And because we all have the same goal, which is to try to improve how we do value assessment and assess value. And the focus of everyone involved is to make sure that, you know, the needs of the patient are met first, even though all the stakeholders have needs in this, but the, the patient is paramount. So I, I think that's one I think the second is because we're a nonprofit, we don't need to worry about, you know, generating profit, right? We don't have to, we don't need to worry about shareholders or the goal to make sure that we're, you know, bringing back, you know, a profit or a certain amount of revenue and generating money for investors or any others that are part of our organization. But we can really focus on our mission and, and, and the research behind it. And because we're also an independent nonprofit and making sure we have that credibility, we can speak to you know the people who make decisions. So I think you know the policymakers, you mentioned Medicare and Medicaid. So we can talk to you know government policymakers and be a voice to kind of shape this environment a little bit and, and they can listen to us. We can also talk to maybe 
policymakers in the private sector as well as they try to shape this environment and, and they will listen to us as well. So, so maybe that's actually three important benefits of being a, a nonprofit organization. In terms of health equity, um, tell me about IVI's mission. And I'd say it, looking through a health equity lens, but I, I don't think you, I don't think we have to say it as that you're looking through a lens as if you're manipulating anything. IVI's mission is very much uh, an, an equity mission in terms of, on the one hand, making sure that everybody gets quality care effectively and efficiently uh, as soon as they could, that everybody has the right to care. That's the you know from the very beginning a fundamental, uh, and to do what you can to try to regain the trust, uh, especially among disadvantaged populations and underserved populations who maybe at this point they just don't believe uh, in healthcare. So sometimes some communities, even if we start providing more services for them, part of the problem is not just providing the services, but in convincing people to take advantage of them. So how is it that IVI um, is, is able to bring us closer to resolving and uh, bridging the gaps in health equity today? Well, I think first it's to acknowledge what you just mentioned, right? That there are structural racism issues within healthcare in general and to, to acknowledge that and to try to address that overall. And then one aspect of that is how we actually look at value because there are aspects with you know minority populations and and underserved populations that we haven't considered when we're looking at value and value could be different from their perspective than populations that aren't like that and so that's one element that we've been trying to do a better job of incorporating into the kind of the science and the research behind value assessment and so you know within the initiative that we've led a lot of it is actually first you need to talk to these communities and the people that represent these communities and discover, you know, what are the important elements that they want? What's the perspective that we're not seeing that we need to know about? And, and then I think the other aspect of that is there are obviously certain disease conditions that are more prevalent in these types of populations. And so we need to look at, as we're looking at assessing value for the therapies or interventions in those disease conditions, are we incorporating the perspectives of these you know, underserved and minority populations? Or are we just looking at it like we've always looked at it, you know, populations as a whole and not considering the different you know, elements within the populations or the, the different kind of divisions within a variety of populations? So I think that's one of the things that we're trying to do is, can we come up with kind of best practices and recommendations to consider those perspectives that are really important and try to improve health equity and value assessment by incorporating, you know, the perspective of those populations that we haven't really considered historically. The interview that I just put up this week uh, was talking to somebody where eventually we drilled down and said, uh, you, everything you do for health equity is great, but it's not going to be nearly as effective uh, unless you get CBOs working with you. You find somebody smarter than you who is in that particular community and, and don't send them stuff and don't send them flyers and things like that and say, here, go on. Like that. No, sit there and ask one question and then listen for an hour and they will tell you the best way to 
to do outreach because out, I mean, you can have a dot org all you want to, but without the outreach, you're never going to be able to communicate to people. Yeah, uh, I, I, I totally. Sorry, I was just going to add to that. I no, totally agree. I mean, how how are you going to how are you going to know what the folks that this is affecting what they think unless you you know, engage with them, right? And ask them, you know, what's going on. I would add another thing that you kind of sparked a thought in my mind with what your comment, and that is that it requires work in every aspect of the system, right? We can work on a health equity and value assessment, but if people aren't trying to improve health equity within clinical trials, right? And trial diversity, it's not really going to help because then the data that we're trying to utilize might not be the best data. And if you know, if providers are not trying to do a better job when they're interacting with their minority population patients, if they're not trying to do a better job of considering, you know, the differences in their perspective and the care that they need, then that's not going to help at the point of care. And so I think all of these things have to be done, you know, together so that we can kind of improve overall the, you know, the quality and value of care. Right. But it's a waterfall. It's, it's, it's a waterfall experience. So you do a little, 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 and you keep dropping the seeds, but all the change is going to happen simultaneously and exponentially. So the, it, the work is not as complicated. It's it's complicated at the beginning to try to foresee as much as you can, but then you attack. IVI sounds like you're going after things on multiple fronts. I feel like I when I, I went to medical school in the mid '90s, and I was kind of the generation where we started to think more about okay, listen to the patient more. I felt like I was kind of in the transition where we did that, but but you know historically in medicine your training is, well, you don't ask what the outcome that the patient wants, because you're assuming that they want the same outcome as you do, which is, you know, the the best health outcome, right? The best, you know, a cure or, and so that's where I think, and, and the reason I bring that up is there's the same equivalent when it comes to value assessment. You know, when, when we've done value and we've assessed values of intervention, we think, you know, health economists and the people who've done this work, we think, well, the best outcome has to be, you know, what's the lowest price for the best health outcome? And that is not, you know, for a lot of patients, that's not the most important thing, right? And it might not even be kind of the best quality of life for the lowest price. It might be, you know, I really want, you know, there's another aspect of value that I mentioned called insurance value. And that's where people kind of feel, you know, more secure just because they're getting a, you know, a treatment, right? And, and their security is for them and their family and there's aspects of value that that's really hard to incorporate, but they feel better about it. But, but if we don't ask patients, well, what components of value, like what is valuable to you about this intervention? And if, they, if, if it's not, you know, why well, I just want to live longer or I just want the best quality of life, but actually what I want is to, you know, live enough that maybe there's gonna be another you know, intervention, another option that helps me, or maybe this, maybe this therapy in 10% of patients does really well, but in 90% of patients doesn't do as well. I want to take that risk, right? I want to take that risk of, of 10% because I, you know, because if not, things are not going to go well for me. So I'm willing to do that. And that's an aspect of value that we don't know how to incorporate, but if we don't ask the patient what they want, we're not going to know. So 10 years from now, what would be ideal for you? How would you really want the state of healthcare to be? And I'm especially interested on the patient doctor level. I mean, the Mm -hmm. individual level, as far as focusing on individual patients, we could be talking about gigantic providers. 
I understand that. I'm interested in 10 years from now, what is the patient experience? What would be ideal for you for the patient experience to be? And that IVI is a part of getting us there. It's a great question and a difficult question. Uh, There are many different aspects of that. I would say the best outcome would be that every patient provider interaction that the patient is getting the highest quality of care and the highest value of care. Now that's a very lofty goal. And I don't know where our healthcare system is gonna be in 10 years from now when it comes to looking at value, but I would hope that wherever it is, that the focus is on the patient and what is valuable to the patient and their family and their caregiver. And the way that we're actually looking at value is able to incorporate that perspective. And and so I think that's probably the most important thing. I'll I'll add something else, and that is innovation in healthcare is moving so rapidly, and we are far behind when it comes to knowing how to assess the value and then how do you actually do the financing and payment and reimbursement behind that. We're just, we're light years behind. And so another thing I would say is that we, as we do value assessment and do it better, are being able to catch up to the actual innovations that we're seeing technologically. Uh, Because otherwise, people are not going to have access to the best quality and the highest value care. So we need to, to use value assessment to catch up. And there's aspects of that. In addition to what I mentioned about the different components of value that we need to incorporate, there's other aspects that are really important. We mentioned patient-centeredness or patient-preferred type of perspective, but another big thing that I want to mention before we're done is about health equity. I know that you know NCQA has been doing a lot of work around health equity and social determinants of health. We are also leading efforts around health equity and value assessment because there's components of health equity in value assessment and healthcare overall that we have not incorporated and we need to do that. And so we have an initiative we're trying to, to make sure that in the future, looking at value assessment, health equity components are also included in how we look at that. And I would say 10 years from now, I'm hoping that you know, within healthcare, particularly within that provider-patient relationship that you mentioned, that health equity is a big part of that interaction as well. And, th- and those things are being considered as they're trying to provide the highest quality and highest value care. CEO of the Innovation and Value Initiative, Dr. Jason Spangler, joining me for a wide-ranging chat. For more info on IVI's work and Jason's ideas, check out the links in this episode's description. It's always worth a look. Next up, I talked with some NCQA colleagues about our upcoming Health Innovation Summit. The summit, our new live four-day event, is sold out. Over 1,300 people have registered, and registration is now closed. But for those who can't make it, I'll be conducting quick interviews at the summit. Quick interviews with keynote speakers, exhibitors, and colleagues straight from the podcast center on the summit floor. From Halloween through November 3rd, you'll get free mini-episodes of this podcast in your feed each night. And for those of you who are already packing your bags to come down to D.C., here are some inside pitches about the event. Two brief chats with a couple of NCQA's stars. First up, Frank Michike is Vice President for Public Policy and External Relations here at NCQA. And that makes him my boss's boss. He used to be my boss's boss's boss, and now he's my, my boss's boss. Here is Frank's take 
on the summit. Largest event that NCQA itself has ever put on. Uh, we're extraordinarily excited about the interest uh, that we've seen in attending the event and speaking at the event, I should say, in both cases um, uh, and sponsoring the event. Uh, in, in both speaking and sponsoring, we've had to actually um, turn people away in that we were full. Our booths were full. Our speaking slots were full. Uh, and uh, that's always a good problem to have. Uh, and uh, teaser, uh, expect us to get bigger next year in order to, to meet that demand. Speakers, uh, sponsors, and um, attendees. So I'm very excited about the success uh, so far uh, and the interest level shown, but I'm excited about getting back together. And I'm particularly excited about being able to highlight two of the biggest priorities uh, for NCQA going forward and, and currently, but, but certainly even more so going forward. And those would be digital quality, digital quality measurement, digital quality solutions, as well as uh, health equity. It's not just about us, of course. There are a lot of people who will be showcasing a lot of things, progress they're making uh, on equity, on digital, and in other areas, uh, as well as some of the exciting developments um, we're seeing uh, in the industry, uh, healthcare industry, uh, and uh, among the plants who are traditional customers. You were just talking about the uh, the live events that have been that have done in the past. This is a four day live event and the, uh, it's a scope uh, of an event uh, and scale that I, I don't think we've done before. Uh, how do you see the summit in terms of the growth and development of NCQA and where we are now? Well, I, I do think it's a excellent vehicle uh, for a number of things, equity and um, the use of digital health information technology to advance the same goals that we've had from the beginning. Uh, which, as I said, better health, better health care, um, but to make the process more real-time, uh, less burdensome for everyone involved, uh, to expand the ways in which the data that we've traditionally co collected and some data that we have not traditionally collected but will uh, ideally be doing so uh, through our uh, innovation in, in digital measurement, um, to expand the use of that data uh, to a whole new range of uh, concerns, uh, areas of care, modalities, and, and populations. So let me ask you, uh, for people who are attending the event, there's, there's so many different opportunities for, for learning and for training and for, uh, for meeting with sponsors, for going into the, the pavilion and seeing the, the people who have uh, booths on exhibit. I, I'm even made aware that for people who are signed up for HEDIS, who are, who are using and trying to follow HEDIS measures going towards all different kinds of certification, interested in the health equity accreditation program that, that, that we have now. Uh, if you could just go in person to this summit, you could actually stand face to face with people who will answer any questions that you have. So that's just one opportunity that you have. So tell me, uh, tell me on your own about uh, some of the opportunities for attendees at the summit. This summit is really a um, reformulation of a couple of events that we've hosted in the past that were very specifically targeted at customers of our PCMH product and health plan accreditation. And it is, of course, being a central part of health plan accreditation. 
Uh, so we've combined the uh, Health Quality Congress and the PCMH Congress and thrown in a whole bunch of new stuff. However, getting back to the combination, we uh, at those events were often explaining uh, changes that have been made to the programs and highlighting best practices around the programs. That will continue here. It will be an element of what might one might take away from the conference. So you'll have access to our experts, both you'll hear them from the stage, but you'll also will have a booth, an NCQA booth, where um, we have the people who uh, develop and implement these programs available to talk to folks. And of course, throughout the four days, uh, those same people from NCQA will be circulating and attending the events and you'll have the opportunity to interact with them there. In, uh, in terms of, uh, I'll go back to equity, which has become a real focus for us, we are going to have some amazing speakers uh, who are detailing both uh, the issues uh, and the, the presence of inequities in our system. And I think even more excitingly, uh, potential solutions, potential progress that we can make towards a more equitable healthcare system. So uh, if your focus is health equity, and we know that that uh, focus or that area has become uh, much more of a focus for all sorts of organizations, uh, then you will be hard pressed to find more experts under one roof on that topic. Uh, and also, again, to learn from uh, the NCQA team with our the health equity accreditation program and our health equity accreditation plus program uh, to learn uh, from the folks who designed it and who are implementing it. My thanks to NCQA VP for Public Policy and External Relations, Frank Michike, for talking up the summit with me. I'm shining a light on one point Frank made. We plan to make this an annual event. So again, if you couldn't make it this year, Please start planning for next year. As a vendor, as an exhibitor, as a speaker, as a guest, as a participant, no details yet on next year's venue, but we do plan to go bigger. So, as you start thinking about next year's Health Innovation Summit, let me introduce you to one of NCQA's best and brightest. The incredible Akina Better, CMPDES, is our Director of Events and External Relations. Akina is a hub of all the activity for the summit. There's tons of people here planning all different aspects of this event, but let me go out on the limb and say Akina is the fixer. She's the detail person. She's a key player in this event and the colleague you can count on to get things right the first time. So Akina took a break, let me say she, she took a breath from planning our sold out summit to let me know what participants should expect this year and in years to come. The Health Innovation Summit, what do you want people to walk away with by the end of the event? A sense of, wow, I really wanna do this again. That's what I want people to take away from this event, which is, and how do you get that, wow, I really wanna do this again kind of feeling? Well, you create opportunities that people learn something new, right? You create opportunities for people to network with colleagues across the industry, whether it be old colleagues that you haven't seen in a while or new colleagues that you get to make new connections with, right? 
So those are the kind of, wow, that was really great. And I want to do this again. And that's how I'm hoping people will take away uh, from the summit this time around. So our goals for the event, how, how would you say, why are we doing the event? Why the, the health innovation summit. So what is it all about? You know, it's like, we're all looking forward to getting back together. And for some people, it will be the first time that they're getting back together um, on the other side of the height of COVID. And in doing that, we want to make them feel welcome in our city. You know, um, we headquarter in Washington, D.C., right? So we want to make people feel like they are welcomed home. Right. So we want to include our friends from um, the Destination D.C., which is the D.C. arm of the Tourism Bureau. And we will have some, you know, some things there, you know, the metro map. So you can learn your way around the city if you get a chance to get out of the building in the evenings, you know, post event or uh, getting a chance to see some local restaurants in the area. So we want to bring a little bit of D.C. to people. So when you walk into this big, beautiful hotel, you'll know that you are in Washington, D.C. and NCQA's home. Akina Better, NCQA's Outstanding Director of Events and External Relations, giving us an eagle-eyed view of the summit. Time for our Fast Facts segment, tidbits of knowledge to sow and grow in your mind and share with those around you. Now let's talk about getting shots. In a November episode coming up next month, we'll talk about Antibiotic Awareness Week. But in this episode, I'm highlighting World Polio Day 2022, which the CDC tells us was October 24th. So here's a few facts from the CDC on where the world stands now with polio reduction, working toward polio eradication. I'll include a link in this episode's description where most of this information comes from. The World Health Assembly adopted a declaration to eradicate polio back in 1988. In terms of wild polio virus transmission worldwide, we've now achieved 99.9% reduction. Around the world, as an example, polio cases have fallen from an estimated 350,000 in 1988 to just six, count them, six cases reported last year in 2021. Since 1988, over $27 billion, billion with a B, has been saved in healthcare costs worldwide. And what we've learned about fighting such a disease internationally, from building infrastructure to education, cannot be overstated. The CDC continues to work with global partners in recruiting, training, and deploying public health professionals, and in supporting vaccine equity. I'll include a link in this episode's description to NCQA's HEDIS measure, Childhood Immunization Status. The measure calculates a rate for the DTaP, the MMR vaccines, and of course IPV, which is a combo of three polio vaccines, as well as nine separate combination rates. And remember, again, we'll be highlighting Antibiotic Awareness Week in November, so don't touch that dial. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask now for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org with your comments. And if your mind is blanking on what to say, so here's our question of the week. What do you think is the most significant HEDIS measure? 
And yeah, you can go to our website and look them up. Of course you can. In fact, tell everybody you know. Go to our website. Find out more about us. So if you got an, a an answer to the question, then drop us a line. And if, if you have a comment or a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, okay, maybe you'd like to be a guest on our show. Just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. We hope to hear from you soon. Well, that's all for episode 91 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks for joining us. This episode's done, but plenty more came before it for you to explore and investigate. Share a show. Spread the word. Help build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. And if you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show to share with friends and colleagues. And I'm going to add in special this week at the summit. I'm going to be in our glass enclosed, plexiglass enclosed uh, podcast center. I'll be downstairs meeting level four right next to the escalators. You go down the escalator, look to the left, and we'll be right there in our beautiful booth doing live interviews. We'll have speakers on the outside so you can hear everything that's going on. And I'll be honest, if I'm in there and there's no interview going on, you are welcome to come by and say hi and even to sit on down and uh, we'll give you a little interview for a couple of minutes. We're doing lots of mini interviews. I'm going into the exhibit hall, into our healthcare pavilion, and we're going to talk things up with all the people there. It'll be a fine time. And that translates to the people who are not going to be there. There'll be more content than normal for you to listen to every single night to catch you up on what you missed. And as always, we thank you our loyal listener, for being part of our audience. So on behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.